cool. Hi. Okay, that's fair. So if you don't know me, hi, my name is Melissa. I lived here like 10 years ago. <laughs> so, though actually, um, this past spring, I was teaching as an adjunct to class over at NCTC. So I was here like every Thursday for an eight-week class, and every time I'd like look down at this building and be like, man, I miss the Denton Church. And then I would go back to Wiley and be like, I love the Wiley Church. <laughs> So, again, it's nice to be invited back up here. I know a lot of y'all, and I miss a lot of y'all, and there's a lot of y'all I don't know yet. And so, um, hello. Good to meet you. I won't remember your names. So, um, I picked um, the, the verses I wanted to talk about today. I picked in part because it's one of my favorite summations of the gospel message, and it also has a bonus opportunity to be a bit of a Bible nerd. So, I wanted to talk about uh, John 8, 1 through 11 today. And so we'll have that on the screen, and I'm going to read it out. Now, I very cleverly said I'm going to read it out, and then I didn't actually copy that one into my notes. So we're like, I'll read it off my phone. Um, but you pull it up in your, in your Bibles if you like to read along or read along on the screen. So John 8, um, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this... Those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the women, woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. So before I get into like the, the heart, the meat of the sermon, um, and I, have, I actually made like three neat points. This is unusual for me. Um, so we'll get to that in a bit. But I wanted to talk a little bit about just the, the meta comment on the passage itself. Um, and in a lot of your Bibles, you'll see that it has like this little heading behind, before it that says, the woman caught in adultery. And I find that such an interesting little like editorial comment on there. Because in that story, there's several sets of characters, right? Like there's the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. There's the crowd that's watching this. There's Jesus. There's the woman. And we're left begging this question, was she caught in adultery with herself? Like, that's not adultery. Where's the dude? Like, where is the other party to the adultery here? Um, and so, as far as, like, summing up, like, there's a lot of stories in the Bible that have the teachers of the law and that have Jesus and they have a crowd. So it's interesting to kind of be like, well, f focus on the woman. But the invisible part there is the dude. Like, where is he? Um, and so I've heard this described before as also known as the story of the men caught in hypocrisy. Like, there's this double standard here of, like, oh, we've noticed the woman caught in adultery, but the dude, pff, don't care about him. Um, and so that's interesting. We'll get back to that in a little bit. And then this other, probably bigger can of worms 
in a lot of your Bibles, you probably saw that text entirely in italics. And in some of your Bibles, you've got a little footnote that says, the earliest manuscripts do not have these verses. And so that is like a giant can of worms, right? Like we have this question of like, why are these verses in the Bible? And it starts getting the scholars asking all of these questions about like, well, what's the entire tradition of like how scriptures were handed down to us? And how do we understand like what's the most accurate? And the thing that I find so very interesting and annoying is for whatever reason, Jesus chose to come to earth before there were like video cameras recording everything he said. (laughs) Jesus, in his ultimate wisdom, decided, let's come at a time when they're definitely writing things down. There's definitely communication. There's definitely ways of preserving what's being said. But it's not like snapshot. It's not the photographic thing that we want today in the 21st century. And so I just have to marvel at that and also be like a little annoyed at God. And then I'm like, wait, do I know better than God on that one? So for those of us who kind of like get into the weeds on that one, I like, I, I can go way down those rabbit holes of, well, how do scholars make sense of this? And there's like different camps that people come into. There's the question of like, did John originally write it? And then some editors got a little uncomfortable with the theology and took it out. Or did John write it? And then say, actually, let's take that out. Or did John not write it, but somebody else put it in? And again, scholars can argue in circles about this. And then I just get stuck on this. That is not how God chose to speak to us. You know, like God did not give us a, here's the one singular canonical manuscript. God's like, I will let my people write things down and pass them around. And I will let humans translate them. And so the part of me that wants to be exactly correct, and I want to know what is exactly true and exactly right, that part of me is so annoyed. And then the part of me that gets to be God's hands and feet, I feel so empowered by that, that something as important as the word of God, God said, yeah, that's cool. You you pass around these manuscripts. You translate things. And then when you get, again, into the weeds of like what various scribes write in the margins of text, It's just like, hey, God gave us a lot of power. And so again, there's the part of me that wants to know what is exactly right and just stick to that. And then I realize, I know a lot of things are not in dispute in scripture and I struggle so hard to follow those parts. So why am I getting hung up on this? (laughs) So, So that is why I'm proudly preaching about a story that some don't even put in the Bible. I'm okay with it. Um, And really, we should never build our beliefs around a single proof text. You know, like, we look at the scope of scripture. We look at everything. And so many of us find, like, our favorite verses. And we're like, I really like this one verse, and this is my proof text on what salvation is. Or this is my one proof text on what human sexuality is. Instead of looking at, again, the big picture of, like, everything going on there. So the more we study the the whole story of God's interactions with humanity, the more we'll see that big picture. So there's nothing in this passage that you don't find consistently throughout scripture. And hopefully, I'll put enough scriptural references throughout the rest of this so you see that. So the three not parallel points that I'm going to talk about, um, I'm going to cover this thing about the double standards of sin that we see in this passage. Um, I'm going to talk about the way that Jesus says, like there's no condemnation there. Um, he doesn't condemn her. 
And then I'm going to zoom in on that go and sin no more section of it. And again, I think those three points generally sum up the gospel story. So we'll start on the double standards of sin. This is probably the point that I will talk about the longest. And again, I already mentioned this part. Like, there were probably two people committing sexual immorality here, right? We just don't have it in the text. But we only have the woman. And it tells us something interesting And I think it's something that has continued over the past couple of millennia. Like, this seems to be a thing that is just common to the fallen human condition. Um, That there's these sexual double standards that the culture was holding regarding, like, what's okay for men, what's okay for for women. And so I wonder how much of this is just, they're like, oh, boys will be boys, and I let the guy go. They're like, oh, it was just locker room talk, we'll let him go. Like, sorry, sorry. Um, but it's like, that's, that's debasing men, right? It's saying like, oh, men can't be disciples to the same standard as women. Like, that's just abandoning biblical truth in favor of our cultural excuses. And yeah, I think there's different pressures that our cultures put on us and different traps that we have. But again, consistently throughout scripture, I don't see a lot of like gender-based carve-outs when it comes to how we live as disciples. Again, I think about like, what if Ephesians 5 said, among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality, except for when there are no women around, or except for when there are no men around. I have not ever hung out in a group of only men. There's something about, like, when I enter the group, it's no longer a group of only men. So I'm not really sure what I'm talking about here. I kind of hate that I had to explain that one. I was, I was expecting the laughter at the first comment, but okay. Okay. It's like, is Denton living up to the stereotypes worse than I realized? Oh, no. But then I think about things that I hear in, like, groups of only women, um, and just sometimes the, I hear a lot of, like, idolatry that just slips into our conversations, where people start replacing God with their husbands, their children, their families, their appearance of being, like, being the right wife and things like that, and they start serving the created rather than the creator, and it is so hard because it's part of, like, part of our calling is to be God's hand and feet, like show love to people. But so quickly, I find people who start replacing their trust in God and their trust in their spouse. And sad to say, like, I have to like stare at Justin in particular, like, sorry, Justin, your wife is a broken human. He's like, yeah, sorry to shock you. Yeah, Justin's like, I know, yeah. He's like writing down, like, I will use this later. (laughs) Yeah. Or I think about times that I've met women who are just like so passive in the face of sin. And they see something and they're like concerned about these cultural pressures of like, what if you're too strong? What if you're too assertive? What do you get called when, when you like violate those cultural norms? But then they're passive in the face of sin and they're not being disciples. They're not living up to their calling there. So again, there's like so many different double standards that our culture just kind of goes with. Um, And I think one of the roots of this goes back to anytime we act like God's commands apply to somebody else and not to us. So we go back to in Luke 6, why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but you don't notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, friend, let me take out the speck in your eye when you do not see the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. 
The way of the cross says to always look at my own heart first, to always look at where am I sitting, where am I failing, and then, only then, can you see clearly to remove the speck from your neighbor's eyes. And this isn't some helpless mass of like, I will never have no sin in my eye, I will never be able to correct and rebuke those in the body. Like that's, again, if you read the totality of scripture, you're like, yeah, that's clearly not the case. We do, we are called to correct and rebuke others. But disciples take it seriously to like, look at our own hearts first. When am I tolerating things that I know are sin? When am I refusing to be transparent in my own life? When, I'm, when am I refusing to take these things that I just wonder about and bring it to, to mentors and pastors and say, is this a sin, is this not, what do I do with this? And then sometimes we just rejoice that others are being roasted. So sometimes we listen to sermons and think, wow, I sure hope that Justin listened to that part. I sure hope my friend listened to that part and felt stung without first holding it up to my own heart and saying, hey, no, that's, that's about me. That's about my heart. I, I agree with that comment, too. So another way that I think about these double standards, again, is this thing about like culturally acceptable sins. Um, so how violating God's sexual ethic was viewed as crime worthy of death for that woman, but the man just kind of was like unimportant in the story. And this gets so hard to approach from within our own cultures. Again, we're just like raised in our cultural values. We know what it's like generally, like what are the American expectations of what's right and wrong? And it's hard to hold that up and say, okay, but what's actually a Christian expectation of what's right and wrong? So one of the books that I read last year that really wrestled with this, it's a book titled Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes. And it has some really interesting illustrations. So it's written by a couple of guys who are like missionaries in Indonesia. And they had all of these interesting stories because there were like churches all over Indonesia and people following God faithfully. And these guys were helping, like, helping to build the churches. And they were just struck by, like, the cultural differences and asking, like, what's sin and what's not. So one of the, the little anecdotes in the introduction, um, this, this guy who was teaching Bible classes, he was talking to his students who had taken an exam, and they left a lot of questions blank. They just skipped it. They're like, I don't know that question. I'm going to skip it. And the teacher asked him, like, well, why didn't you at least guess like, you didn't know the answer, why not just guess? And one of the students said, well, what if I accidentally guessed the correct answer? I would be implying that I knew the answer when I didn't. That's lying. Why would you expect me to lie? And, like, it breaks our American brains because, like, we've all been trained on, like, how to take the SAT. We're like, oh, like, make your best guess. Don't leave it blank. You at least have a chance of getting it. And the author writes about how his American pragmatism had been winning out over his Christian standard of honesty. What was worse was that I hadn't even noticed until a non-Western person pointed it out. And so again, I'm not saying like, this should fundamentally change our test-taking approach because we're all sinners. It highlights the way that in our culture, we don't even view it as dishonest. We don't even, like, we don't even have the tools to talk about it. We don't really have the language to say, is this right, is this not? And there's so many things. So I'd written this part of the notes earlier in the week, and 
then yesterday I was like getting annoyed. I was driving home. I was getting so annoyed at the car in front of me. I was like, why is he driving so slow? And then I looked and I was like, oh, I'm driving 15 over. <laughs> He's driving the speed limit. And it does not even cross my mind most of the time to think of like, is violating traffic laws a sin? Or is that just the way we drive? I'm like, I don't know. So if any of you know, please rebuke me later. <laughs> There's just so much of that, and like the very nature of like so much of our economy is just built around like greed is good, greed is good, even at the expense of the well-being of people. And we just accept this as like the way things have to be, instead of it saying, hey, this is a corruption of sin, and then asking, so how do we navigate a sinful world? Because I also think about what Paul wrote about like, um, don't associate with an immoral brother, but the thought of like, if I try not to associate with like an immoral person, that means I would have to leave the world entirely. It's like, it is kind of impossible to engage with a sinful world without engaging with sinful people and sinful institutions. So good luck with that. Um, but again, looking at our own hearts, how do I live? How do I choose how to live? What should my community look like? Another one of these that just falls into our culturally acceptable sins, um, Jesus had a lot of hard teachings about how we view money. Like there's this parable in Luke 12 about this guy who had like really big harvest and he planned to store up for the future, build bigger barns, and he said, now I can take life easy and eat, drink, and be merry. And God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with those who store up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. And again, this is a heart check moment. When we think about that story, is our first thought to let's point fingers at people who are obviously not living about living for Christ. Are we pointing to like, let's pick our, what is our demonized billionaire of the week? I can't ever keep up with like, who are we supposed to hate? Was it Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or both? I almost think it's like a, a political Rorschach test of like whichever one you hate more is an indication of your politics. But again, another story there. Um, so we'll fight later. But again, it's like in our own hearts, in our own communities, how often am I putting my faith in um, this kind of this like American dream of, oh, we're, we're trained to like look forward to retirement, save up enough so you can stop working at whatever age. Is it 68 now that we might retire at? I was like, who knows anymore? <laughs> Approaching infinity, yeah. Yeah. Instead of saying like, oh, I need to be rich towards God. Like, Jesus doesn't view it as um, you can't have wealth. It's Jesus says, this is how it will be with those who store up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. The most important thing is, are you being rich towards God? And how is God then blessing you in response to that? However that looks. But again, we are so poorly equipped to have those conversations because we are just trained in what is the conventional wisdom of how I run my finances. So there's just a lot there. And there's kind of a flip side to that too of like sometimes our culture say something's a sin, but then we look at scripture and we're like, does God really care about that? And that's again, that's a really messy conversation. It is so easy to like take our favorite sins and say, well, actually that's not a sin. But then there's that flip side of, and one of the things that the authors of, of Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes had brought up is people coming out of particular religious communities that were like, you can't play cards, you can't dance, you can't ever touch alcohol. And I'm like, 
dancing and playing cards is like, that's the standard like after focus event as far as I know, <laughs> you know? So we're all sinners. Or maybe they're not sins, but some communities have taken things too far. And again, that is an ongoing conversation. I just want to like drop that bomb and run away. Yeah. But who, Shayla, you're preaching next week, right? So you're just going to clean up everything I say. Okay. You're not even taking notes. <laughs> so, so Shayla's making excuses, okay. <laughs> Love you. Okay, cool. So you just copy off his work. Okay. Let's see. Are you now regretting sitting in the front row? Okay, no. Like, where are my notes am I? I, I don't even have, like, a roast Shayla section on here. Like, it's too bad. Yeah, more roasting. Yeah, so I probably already said this point, but that's where in my notes I found myself. Um, again, this is not some kind of helplessness of, like, it's impossible to know what's a sin and not, what's not. I'm just saying, like, so often we're blinded by our cultures. So often we're just blinded by our comfort zones. And it's like, oh, if everybody around us says it's okay, it's okay. But instead, we should be more open to um, looking at, you know, global Christianity and historical Christianity. So sometimes there are things, critiques that we need to humbly listen to from our British sisters and brothers or from Nigerian pastors and people who've worked in international contexts, people who know more than just suburban Texas. And we need to learn from history. It is so interesting looking at throughout Christian history, which things have been, these are the big arguing points. And again, that doesn't mean that necessarily if Christians believed it in 500 AD, they must be closer to the truth. I'm not saying that's a necessary point. I'm just saying we need to look at that big picture and then bring it to God, like ask the Spirit to show us what's true here instead of having a very, very narrow view. It is too easy to act like we're, like, become more American than we are Christian just because that's where we live. So, getting back on, on track, um, I mentioned at the start that this is one of my favorite summations of the gospel message overall. Because we've got the whole, like, sin, redemption, obedience narrative arc in a very short story. We've got the sinner. We are sinners doing what's right in our own eyes. And then God reaches out to us. Jesus reached out to this woman and offered redemption, offered forgiveness. It was not this, you are a sinner, you are condemned type of judgment. Jesus offered redemption. And in gratitude, we grow to walk in line with how God created us to be. We obey, we offer that obedience in response. Our obedience will never earn us God's forgiveness. We can never earn that but instead, the obedience is what we offer in response to God's grace and forgiveness. So that brings us over to the second point. Um, this, this thing about there's no condemnation here. Jesus is not condemning this woman. In this passage, the teachers of the law were expecting that. They were expecting some kind of judgment against the woman. After all, the law did say she was worthy of death. But at the same time, they knew it was a trap, right? They knew, they knew enough about the heart of Jesus to know, yeah, Jesus will probably be like soft on sin. Jesus would probably reject what the law said. And so that's where they've set this trap because they know. They knew enough about the heart of Jesus and they knew that he would somehow undermine the law of Moses. 
but Jesus avoided that trap by just having the crowd reflect on their own sinfulness. This, this statement of, they kept on questioning him, and he just said, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, I've heard this passage described as being like, I love this phrase of like, dangerously soft on sin, which if you take only this passage and not the totality of scripture, you'd be like, huh, interesting. But again, we consistently see throughout scripture that there are times that it is appropriate within communities to call each other out. Again, if we said, oh, you can't call somebody out on their sin ever because they are a sinful person, again, that humanity is like completely lost. But that's not what scripture says. We consistently see things like Jesus saying, like, if your brother sins against you, you like talk to him. And then if he doesn't listen, you take it to the church. And if the community can't figure it out, then you treat him like a pagan or tax collector. Like we see this progression, Jesus talks about that. So it's not this, there is no response to sin in our communities. Like clearly that's not where Jesus is going. But there is this thing about Jesus, like nobody takes sin more seriously than God does, but it's God's responsibility to pass judgment. That's ultimately up to God to pass judgment. And at a core level, again, all of these things, it was clear that the teachers of the law were not interested in God's justice. They were interested in shutting Jesus up. They were interested in a trap there and using this woman as a prop. Which is interesting that they seem to have just missed the heart of God throughout Scripture. Throughout Scripture, we see God's grace pouring out onto people who have all kinds of sordid pasts, all kinds of sinful lives, And it seems to delight God to pluck people out of those circumstances and say, yeah, that one, that's going to be my spokesperson. Um, Our our small group this past spring read a book titled Scandalous Grace, and it basically goes through all kinds of people in the Bible, and it's like, oh, so uh, Moses saw something, like he saw that Egyptian beating on somebody. He killed him, like he kills this guy. Like That is excessive violence. Moses is a murderer. And God's like, yeah, I can use him. He can still be my spokesperson. Um, that, that murderer is going to lead my people out of enslavement. Or um, what's her name, Rahab with the, 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 the scarlet thread. Yeah, that hooker is going to be part of my plan to give Israelites the promised land. Like there's just so many Bible stories of people who are by all kinds of like self-righteous standards, complete screw-ups. And God's like, eh, I'll make it work. He's gonna, you do like, here's the entire, like, look at everything David did. This guy is a train wreck. And God says, yep, I'll use him. So there's something in there about God's goodness and God's forgiveness that we just can't skim by. But we're so quick to be the ones to be like, let me make sure judgment happens. Let me make sure that person feels the pain of what they did. And again, that is God's problem. God is very clear. Like, God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Um, There are things, like, sin has its consequences. And even as I'm, like, talking about how interesting it was that Moses was called, um, Later on, Moses is like leading the people. He does that thing where he strikes the rock twice and shows this lack of trust in God. And God says, because of this, you won't get to see the promised land. God imposes judgment on people. We don't have that authority. And again, I feel like I am very bad at this. Like I want to impose my own judgment 
rather than trusting God. Um, I, I love those like political downfall stories. Like you find somebody who's like some really self-righteous politician who's judgmental and it turns out he was doing what he was condemning. And like, I feel this like, oh yes, justice. Like I love those stories. And then I find myself like craving the next one and like looking at the, the politicians I don't like and being like, I can't wait till they have a downfall. It's like, that's not my job. That's God's. And I, I start like craving these scandals like it's some kind of primetime drama instead of being heartbroken for the families destroyed by it. And again, I think that's something that just becomes so acceptable in our culture. Um, too often, people who love Jesus don't look much different from the world in this. Another example, like one of the worst things for my like emotional stability is getting on the local Facebook groups. So I, this is a like this is a story I will tell in Denton and not in Wiley. <laughs> like th there's just the crazy things that people post on there, like every kind of slander you can imagine against the politicians that they don't like. And then the worst is when there's like posts about arrests of local criminals and people just dogpile, saying the most dehumanizing, degrading things. And then you click on the person's name and they also, like you see their other posts in the group and then they're like, oh, recommend a church. Where would I like to go? And this person's the same bloodthirsty person is like, I just love my church. I go to fill in the name of the church there. And you're just like, what, what is wrong with us? Like, how is it that we are just cursing people made in God's image because they are sinners when we are sinners and we just dogpile in this bloodthirsty culture? And so there's something here. Um, Paul writes in Romans 12, don't repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And now I will give my enemy a drink. So we have to resist our culture's bloodthirst in this regard. Like, nobody is beyond God's grace and redemption. Yeah. And yeah, there's a lot of conversations to be had about, you know, what's appropriate in terms of, like, protecting others from evil or when people have sinned in various ways. Like, forgiveness and, reconcil forgiveness and reconciliation are very different topics. And so I don't want to, like, just pretend like those are easy conversations. But there's like a core element of do I trust God to be the one to bring judgment instead of me thinking I can bring judgment or that that vengeance is something that can be had in this life. So the third piece of this is the go and sin no more section. And here's where it really does tie up the gospel message so beautifully that the response to God's forgiveness is obedience and again, this is consistent with biblical narratives all throughout, that um, God calls people, he gives these incredible gifts of grace and kindness, and then he says, follow me. Such as, again, the, the Israelites, they were freed from enslavement, not because of anything they did, but then they were given this incredible grace, they were given this gift, and then they were told, okay, here's some, some rules to follow, here's some law. In Titus 2, we see that um, the grace of God that has appeared 
that offer salvation to all people, it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. God's grace is such a good gift. Without this grace, we'd just be screwed, right? Like, I am a sinner, end of story, nothing I can do to change. But through this gift of grace, we have the opportunity to say, okay, I can live differently. You've got another chance to do better. And I'm just so thankful for that. And I just see, I see how God is using that throughout our lives to say, where you came from is not where you're going to have to be. That there is change, there is redemption, regardless of the circumstances. And again, I, I thought about having a long section here about like, when Jesus says, go and sin no more. Like, here's a list of more sins. I'm like, eh, I'll skip that part. Um, in part because I think a lot of that really is a have an ongoing conversation with your pastors, with your friends, with your mentors to really hold up your life and say, okay, where am I falling short? Where do I have these sins? Like, there's no sin that stays hidden. Sometimes we think we get away with it, but we know that our sins have consequences. Like, any time that I'm, like, hiding a sin in the corner of my heart, at some point it will worm its way out. And if you're lucky, it'll come out sooner rather than later. But imagine just the, the consequences of like hiding these sins for years and years and things just like taping, taking deep roots in your lives and all the ways that impacts those around us because we're not living to our God-created potential. Like God's called us to be his hands and feet. And then we just like get wrapped up in these sins and we're not living out how God built us to be. So please continue to have conversations with your friends and mentors about all of that. Um, But to just close out, I wanted to close out with um, a section from Galatians 5. And again, this is a bit of a longer one, so I think we'll have it on the screen again. And it just sums up this, like, when we're called to be, we're called to be free, but don't use your freedom to justify the flesh. So this is going to be Galatians 5, 13 through 26. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but don't use your freedom to, ju- to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the spirit was contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not able to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. (coughs) But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. 
Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. So I'll close us with a prayer. God, we thank you for your grace towards us, for your love, and for your forgiveness. Help us to be a people who honor you with our hearts and with our actions. Strengthen us as we go out throughout the places you've called us to, and help us to be your hands and feet. We love you. Amen. Thank you, Melissa. That was awesome. Um, so we've got only a handful of things going on in our community right now because several events that we have been announcing for a while happened this past week. So we had the men's movie night Friday night, and we had this Bark Social, which I'm hearing was insane. Yeah. So, yeah. Ashley Strong was like, yeah, it was, oof. It was a little bit insane. Maybe a little too insane. Um, so coming up, actually, it was a perfect trailer, sort of teaser trailer for this, is that we have a worship night scheduled for August 14th. Um, and a little bit of a trailer for it was Grant's communion thing, um, is we're going to listen to an album of Psalm 119 and also be kind of praying through it, meditating on it, singing along if you want. Um, kind of like an album listening party combined with a worship and meditation um, event kind of thing. So please put that on your calendars. It's going to be really cool. Grant's been working on that for a little while, and so um, definitely make that a priority. It's on Sunday evening, August 14th, 6 to 8 p.m. Bring something to kind of sit on or kneel on, and your Bible, a physical Bible will be best. It'll be kind of a cool analog event, so you can tuck your phone away, forget that the digital world exists for a bit, and worship and meditate on this long but very beautiful really cool psalm. Um, so yeah, please put that in the calendar. It's going to be super cool. It's been a while since we've done something like that. So let's make it, let's make it pop, you know? Um, the next thing is the pool party, which we have been announcing. And then we changed the date on you guys. So just want to make sure y'all know for sure, August 6th, 6 to 8 p.m. That's on Saturday here in Louisville. So it's close to us. So make sure you go so you can kind of brag around a little bit uh, to the other folks who've had to drive further that we got the short drive this time. So if only for that, if only for that reason, then go. Yes, yes. If we have a super awesome Denton showing, then they'll be like, oh, that's what it was. We should make things happen more in Denton, like closer by. So let's really show up strong. It'll be really fun. You'll get to hang with people you know here, and as well as people, our brothers and sisters at our other churches around the DFW area. So don't miss it. Of all the things you hear us announce the next few weeks, that's the one. That's the one to prioritize. If you're like, I can only do five things, or I can only do one thing, this is it. Put this at the top of the list, okay? Yes, Clarissa's got it. The last thing is giving. So you can give on dentonnorthchurch.com slash donate, or on our Venmo at Denton North Church on the Venmo app. And what we always prioritize with giving is just wanting to pour right back into you guys with time, with intentional relational ministry, as well as prioritizing ministering in our city and blessing our city, and being always thinking about what God wants us to do in the kingdom, whether it be planting another church, helping with our other churches, helping focus, whatever it is, those are the three things that are always our top priorities for giving. So I'm going to say a short prayer. The worship team's got to come up and do a bonus song, and then we'll get out of here. Lord, thank you so much for this chance to hear a really challenging message from Melissa, and um, help us just to really seek you as we look at these harder passages that really force us to really engage with the the parts of ourselves that um, we don't want to give up to you, the parts of ourselves that really want to look at specks in others' eyes, the parts of ourselves that want to call out stuff in other people more than ourselves. Help us to have the kind of grace that you have for others. And uh, we just also thank you for the grace you have for us. 
for looking at us and seeing the sin that we do have and, and being so ready to forgive us. Lord, you're so good. Thanks for just the chance to come and worship you together. In your name I pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.